So hello and welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast from The Lancet Psychiatry. It is the end of May 2023 as we're recording this, and I'm Sophia Davis, the Senior Editor at Lancet Psychiatry. And this month I am joined by Dr. Ligia Kiss at UCL and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and Assistant Professor Joelle Mack, who's also at the London School. And their new review of psychosocial interventions for survivors of human trafficking is published in our issue this month. So first of all, thank you so much, both of you, for joining me today. I really enjoyed or appreciated, I should say, reading your paper, which was clearly a huge undertaking. And it's such a great and insightful synthesis of, um, of work in this area. So thank you, first of all. Let's just start with just to orientate our listeners. Maybe you could start by giving us a sense of the scale of human trafficking today, including exactly what you're referring to with that term and maybe some context on the mental health of survivors. Okay, so I'm Joelle Mack. So uh, I will start by going through the terminology and then Lisa will speak about the mental health elements. So the term human trafficking and modern slavery, they're basically umbrella terms that encompass forced labor, sexual exploitation and forced marriage. The main defining feature is the exploitative element such that a person is basically forced to work and unable to leave. And this is usually because of threats or actual violence, coercion, deception, or various abuses of power. So the most recent figure is published in 2022 from the International Labour Organization, the Walk Free Foundation, and the International Organization for Migration, um, indicated that there were approximately 50 million people around the world living in situations of modern slavery. 50, and 50, five, zero. five zero. yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is exists in almost every region of the world and every country of the world. And because much of this exploitative practices are relatively hidden, or at least hidden under plain sight. We expect that this estimate, as big as it is, is likely to be an underestimate. Right. I'm Lisa Kiss. As Joao mentioned, human trafficking or modern slavery involve different types of exploitation. Just to quickly illustrate what this means, in our research, we collected data, for example, from Nepali women exploited as domestic workers in the Gulf states. These women worked up to 14 hours a day, seven days a week. Sometimes they were sleeping on the floors at their work premises, and they were often not allowed to go out alone in the streets. Uh, we also interviewed Nigerian adolescents who escaped conflict in the north of the country. These adolescents have experienced sexual violence abuse before they left Nepal during the transit, which often happened through Libya. And after they arrived at their destination, often in Europe, where they were sexually exploited. In Thailand, we interviewed men from Cambodia and Myanmar who reported spending months in overcrowded long-haul fishing boats where they were deprived of sleep and were carrying out dangerous work, often under the threat of violence or experiencing actual violence. These are just some examples that illustrate the diversity in trafficked people's experience of exploitation and abuse. What they have in common is that they are chronic and traumatic exposures that can last for years and severely impact the mental health of survivors. 
as a result of that, survivors of trafficking commonly present at health services with mental health symptoms, including post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, which is the most explored in the literature of the outcomes, substance misuse, depression, anxiety disorders, mood disorders, and also dissociative symptoms, attention deficit and hyperactive disorder, ADHD, and adjustment disorders are also common among young survivors. Yeah, I think it's really useful to give those concrete examples just to bring it alive and not just have this as a term that we're then, you know, theoretically considering, but think about real, real people going through real situations. So I, I know that you've both worked in this area for some time, as well as in migration and labor exploitation, among other topics. And you bring a range of methodological approaches, including from social science. Since we are a psychiatry journal and some of our listeners might be more based in more pure psychiatry methods, we could say. Would you want to say something about your own research backgrounds and what brought you to this piece of research? Sure. So I myself, I'm a mixed methods, public health and social science researcher. Most of my research actually involves um, evaluations of complex interventions across many different settings for different populations. So specifically around migrant populations, some of my work have involved assessing interventions designed to reduce vulnerability to exploitation when people migrate for work specifically, but also other studies to try to understand migrants' um, coping mechanisms and their overall well-being as they kind of migrate through or follow through the migration journey from departure all the way to arrival and return. So lots of things can happen and trying to understand um, those kind of perspectives. Um, about the methods that we use in our work, Human trafficking is a topic that brings some methodological challenges to researchers. Uh, human trafficking is a complex and dynamic phenomenon that often involves mobile, hidden and hard to reach population. Uh, and it also involves highly politicized debates on migration, as we witnessed, for example, recently with within the UK, uh, the debate around people coming in boats from the continent. In our research, because of this complexity, we use a range of methodological approaches and seek to integrate different strands of evidence. Uh, we've worked with different research designs and methods, ranging, for example, from randomized controlled trials to participant observation. More recently, both of us have been exploring the use of social simulations, such as agent-based models, to inform the development of anti-trafficking interventions. So going back to the review that the Lancet Psychiatry is publishing now, this work was conducted as part of a larger project funded by the UK National Institute for Health, the NIHR. The project, this larger project, aims to develop evidence-based models of care for survivors of violence, including survivors of human trafficking in South Asia. So, as Lisa said, both of us have been working together for a number of years on topics like violence, trafficking, um, labor exploitation, among others. And from our earlier work on anti-trafficking interventions, we realized that there's really a dearth of evidence on what actually works to prevent 
uh, prevent exploitation or reduce exploitation and how migration could actually be made safer. We saw that a lot of interventions out there were not necessarily developed based on strong evidence. And although there have been some systematic reviews conducted in the past, the nature of systematic review approaches means that typically the inclusion criteria and the outcomes are quite narrow. And so we wanted to kind of use this opportunity to improve the evidence base on interventions. And we believe that this is a needed area to support um, improvements of our understanding of, of what could work. And then that could build into better development of interventions, particularly as there's a large, large quantities of investments being pumped into trying to find ways to appropriately address human trafficking and modern slavery. So we wanted to use this as a way to, you know, make a contribution not only to the academic and scholarly literature, but also that would have practical implications that could feed into development of something practitioners could use and could also be informative to policymakers. And I think that's really clear in in the paper. I think it's really clear that it is practically useful. Like you just mentioned, you saw that survivors of trafficking who are seeking out services, it's obviously key that those services are addressing their needs, but we're not sure which kind of interventions are working best. Mm -hmm. So you've said what prompted you to to do the study, what would, what were you aiming for in your review? So I think it kind of goes back to, you know, earlier when we were talking about kind of the definition, what, what does this term mean, human trafficking, modern slavery? So we know that there's such a great diversity and, and differences in groups of survivors, for example, people in experiences of, you know, labor exploitation, sexual exploitation, those are very different experiences and that um, trafficking and modern slavery affect men, women, children, young people very, very differently. And in the early stages of you know us doing this this review, we realized that actually the needs of survivors change at different points in time, and depending on their individual circumstances. So that means that interventions that should work better are those that are also adapting and recognizing that these needs that change over time, and are trying to you know figure out how to address those needs as those changes you know materialize or surface. Yeah, Sorry. I found that a really strong piece of your work that you split it up into this pathway of care, as you called it, with these different stages. Mm. Yeah. So I was just going to say, you know, kind of linking to what uh, we mentioned earlier about systematic reviews and, you know, this this is a review, so it's a synthesis of the existing evidence. But what we thought was a, a good way to approach it is actually combining this approach. So we used a systematic review approach to identify the literature, but then we used a realist framework and realist, you know, perspective in order to help us synthesize and analyze the findings. And because this you know, feeds very well into the realist thinking, which is a way to help us understand not simply what types of interventions work, but actually for which populations and under what circumstances. So that a combined approach we felt would be able to help us answer this question better and creating more nuance that's context specific. Yeah. So then when you did look at those different times and different populations of the interventions, you, you split it up into these different stages from from identifying where someone's at to moving through the crisis situation and then into recovery and then into reintegration with the community. And I really, I really like how it's so clear that those are very different situations with different needs. So based on what you found in this review, what do you see as being some of the most useful interventions at these different stages? 
Uh, yeah, thanks for the question. That's a very interesting angle. I think that before we delve a bit more into the framework, it would be important to highlight that the broader context in which trafficking happen. Uh, people are often exposed to traumatic experiences before trafficking, and often they carry the material and emotional consequences of trafficking long after they leave the exploitative situation. Our framework focuses on a smaller time frame within this trajectory, the time when victims and survivors uh, encounter support and different interventions. At each of the stages in the framework, uh, what we see is that survivors' needs that are most prominent change. Uh, for example, in the first stage, the identification stage, survivors may need help to exit the situation of exploitation, to access a safer environment, to deal with crisis symptoms and fulfill their basic needs, needs such as having a place to sleep, having food to eat, having clothes to wear. In the long term, in the reintegration stage or integration stage, they need to rebuild their lives in a community which may or may not be the community where they originally come from. Uh, interventions in this stage will focus more on social integration, independent living and moving away from the traumatic mem memories. Uh, but in general, for all the stages, interventions that place survivors at the center of their care model, considering how they feel and interpret their needs, and interventions that privilege survivors' agency and decision-making seem to be able to make more significant long-term differences in the long-term uh, recovery process. So interventions that are most useful seem to integrate trauma-informed care and promote survivors' autonomous living independence and, importantly, to build a sense of purpose and meaning into their lives. Yeah, that's so interesting. So when we moved past this crisis point into the recovery and intervention stage, even though, as you point out, this is part of a much longer time frame of someone's life, there was such a wide range of interventions. And you've mentioned some of the key elements to them, but many of them had multiple components involving things, creative things like dance and therapy, uh, dance and music and art therapy, and then also counseling and psychoeducation and learning various skills. With all of these different components, what do you see as some of the most important elements and the, and the mechanisms that they were acting through? Yeah, so we did find a lot of studies with components related to these creative, artistic and relaxation types of activities. And actually overall, these types of interventions are probably slightly under-evaluated, but actually they connect very well to, you know, the psychological health perspective. These particular elements actually give um, survivors a way to process their trauma that is not limited to just verbal expressions. And so there's kind of space for self-expressions and self-care that can be actually adapted and interpreted based on the individual's, you know, preferences and, and needs. And because of this, there are actually potentially might be more conducive for some populations um, in some cultures. So we think that, you know, these types of 
relaxation and creative approaches, they really can potentially benefit um, survivors' long-term recovery because they're not only at the time during the intervention, for example, giving them a tool to process the trauma, but also this tool can be used to support long-term management of, you know, feelings um, and traumatic memories as they resurface. Because we know that, you know, to recover from traumatic experience, it's not a linear process and it's mm -hmm. ongoing and long-term. So giving some of these things are easy potentially to give survivors, you know, um, to develop those tools that they can manage their stress um, and support them in the long-term improvements of their mental health. But as as Leisha mentioned, I think we we mentioned kind of throughout a little bit, but that survivors' experience are really unique. Um, so that interventions that can tailor the activities or components of those activities to the specific needs of survivors and based on their own desires and priorities are probably the things that will work best. And so being able to incorporate activities that actually promote relaxation, self-care, self-expression, we think that that would be a more holistic way to ensure survivors improve their psychosocial health. So it's beyond just a skills training for, you know, living independently, mm -hmm. but actually these other ways of managing that um, can be probably quite easily incorporated yeah. and address this holistic within, idea. Sorry. Even within those different approaches, as you're saying, it's it's not just the type of approach, but it's that that approach is driven by being adapting to someone's needs and be, being responsive to their yeah. needs. Yeah. yeah, I think that's really key. It is trying to find the things that can support individuals and understanding that those needs are going to be different, not only over time, but even you know between people over time, over context, lots of different things yeah. will feed into why you might change your, your treatment options, for example. Yeah. And you also mentioned that interventions in, for example, the USA and Western Europe can tend to be grounded in more of an individualistic concept or going towards independence, whereas that might not fit in some other contexts. And you gave some examples of that. Could you say a bit more about that? So I think um, maybe it's a bit, it's, it would be good to kind of speak about the general transferability of these different models of care when they are developed in one setting and then um, implemented in another. So often they're tried and tested in one setting and found to work and however that is defined and then shifted to another context. But I think the the issue is really that the ideas of mental health and psychotherapy, psychosocial health, these are relatively Western concepts. So the extent to which they are really transferable and that they make sense in settings and in contexts with very different worldviews and interpretations of, of the world and what health is, I think that's still a question that we don't know exactly how these things transfer and whether they're transferred well. Part of the challenge in conducting this review, particularly for this element, is that it just hasn't been that well articulated in the in the individual studies as to what adaptations were made, what were actually some of those underlying assumptions and pathways, how did they initially see it working, even in the original um, version, that wasn't very clear. So concepts of independence, you know, that might be individualistic in, in a Western context, but maybe that's not so well translated in contexts where actually the community, family, those things are more important. So it's not to say that independence is not necessarily a workable um, concept for what you might think of as success, but then how you define it and how you measure it is 
may be different. Mm -hmm. And so I think because interventions haven't really made that clear, it's quite difficult um, to know actually what are the underlying assumptions and what are the things that are measuring? How do we know it's actually successful? Um, So as an example, looking back at some of the, the studies we included, one of the studies described the interviewing service providers who I think in the paper were just described as Americans. So we don't know their cultural backgrounds, obviously, but they, in terms of the healing process, they prioritize a lot of the internal emotional healing. And they saw that as like an important first step. But once that is healed, then some of the other practicalities can come into place. Whereas, and it seems from survivor's perspective, they put a lot of emphasis in sort of the vocational and the education attainment and development. So if they were doing well there, that would be indicative of their healing. So it's not to say that it's one or the other necessarily, but it's more that we don't know because they haven't made that clear. Right. And often, I suppose, when you translate, um, or not, not translate linguistically necessarily, but when you take a program from one setting to another, sometimes there's a lot of conversations about um, training providers, training different people to implement that but i would personally would have liked to see you know to what extent that program has been trained to the local context and understand whether and how that fits in and we didn't see that but that's the personal my personal yeah it sounds like that's an area that needs a lot more work then like exactly you know to think about also for studies to report more what the underlying assumptions are yeah that's that's possible and and then to talk about the, the nature of an adaptation if something's been transferred to a different context. Yeah. I was like, that, that's that's an area that needs working on more. Absolutely. And I think just being clear about your assumptions, even if it's just in one context, that's very, very useful to help understand how those pathways actually operated. Yeah. If it's possible, though, sometimes it's quite tricky to put your finger on what your underlying assumptions are. You know, you have to yeah. do some, some good thinking. Yeah, but I think that's, uh, you know, it's, we should be doing that. Interventions cost a lot. It's ethical to do it properly and take the time to think things through and just make that very clear. If you're going to be able to show success, if if you can't show anything, you would know why. And if it's something in the pathway that's, you know, that didn't happen according to what you thought, then you know that it's that. You don't necessarily, you can't, you won't necessarily then say, okay, the intervention didn't work, but actually that one assumption didn't happen the way we we thought. Yeah. So that's a really important thing to know from a research perspective, from an intervention de- uh, development perspective, from an investment um, yeah. perspective, and that's also for point. survivors. So we not, shouldn't be putting through people through things that we're not sure. You know, we can't, you can't always be sure, but um, you know we need to make more efforts, I think, to do that properly. Yeah, that's such a good point. Well, so given this large piece of research, bringing everything together, that you've done, what do you feel like this means for the field? Like we've talked of some other ways that that research could yeah, move forwards. What what do you see as the main implications of your study? I believe that, as well mentioned before, there is a practical use for the framework and for the results that we have. And one of the areas of work that I think will be very important is uh, the transferability of these models of care to other contexts. So, for example, I'm currently working on sexual exploitation of adolescents in Brazil, and I would be quite keen to see, after leaving the situation, uh, how they navigate local resources, what is in place for them, 
to improve, to help them improve their mental health and well-being. So I think it is a bit testing it out there, the framework to see how we can improve intervention development. And as Joel also mentioned, make assumptions and the rationale of interventions clearer and not just yeah. the outcomes. Yeah. Joel, do you have anything to add to that? Um, I think for, for myself, like as a result of this review, particularly the, the one of your questions about these creative interventions and the role they can play in supporting survivors' mental health, this is something I'm, I'm quite interested in, in exploring because I do think there's there's space for that and it, it is probably a bit under research. So I do actually at the moment have a proposal in for a funding proposal to evaluate a creative intervention for survivors of violence. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed okay. it might be funded. But also, you know, just this idea of like uh using this realist perspective to thinking to help us think more clearly, articulate better and hopefully be able to develop better interventions. That is more clear, better articulated, which also improves the future evaluations. I think that is, you know, adopting this this framework is really helpful to help us understand things that is very context specific for specific groups of survivors or different populations, depending on the, you know, the question. But just kind of adapting, uh, adopting this uh, way of thinking rather than just sort of simply whether interventions work or don't work. So right. much more nuanced and much more tailored. That's what I hope to do going forward. <laughs> Great. So it seems like on two levels, you're, you're moving it forwards, like on, in terms of the subject matter and trying to delve more into that. But then, as you said, more on this methodological level, trying to explore further this realistic approach. Well, I hope that you get the funding and good luck for all the future research. I'll keep my fingers crossed. <laughs> so... Thank you again, both of you, for joining me and talking through your paper. Um, you can read Joel and Ligia's research online now at thelancet.com. Thank you to all the listeners for tuning into this episode of In Conversation With. And remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation With Lancet Psychiatry on your usual podcast place. Mm-hmm.